Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, I, I'm very excited about today's interview because it's our first time expanding into the domain of energy. Uh, there's so much going on in the energy sector today, from the development of renewable energy to debates about oil politics and climate change. And even more recently, we saw the geopolitical tension uh, between Saudi Arabia, Iran, the U.S., uh, it's such a dynamic sector that will continue to influence our lives, and our guest today has over three decades of experience in the oil and gas and energy industry. Uh, Ms. Nancy Lin was a senior advisor for ExxonMobil. Uh, he is, she is also the current co-chair of Princeton's Asian American Alumni Association, and she graduated here uh, in 1977. Thanks so much for joining us in the studio, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Uh, and here to co-host the interview with me is my friend Peyton. Uh, she's a junior in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at Princeton and also the chair of Campus Events Committee of the Princeton University Energy Association. So she's really knowledgeable and passionate about energy issues, and I'm so happy that she's here to help me out because I don't personally understand that much about energy. Uh -huh. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tiger. Happy to be here. So why don't we just start uh, by letting you give us a very broad background and uh, on what you did, your past career, your over three decades of experience in the energy sector. And, and also, I remember just be right before the interview, we talked about some very interesting terms about uh, natural gas versus coal versus the energy industry. So I think as someone who doesn't know too much about the energy industry, and I think some of our listeners might not be uh, as knowledgeable as you are, it would be great for us to have a broad overview about your experience in the energy industry. So um, I retired from ExxonMobil in 2013. I'm a chemical engineer with an MBA in finance from NYU Stern School. And uh, I started with mobile research, uh, looking at technology uh, project opportunities. And after doing uh, research economics for a few years, I decided I really wanted to get into the business side because it was business that drove what technology projects moved forwards and which ones, despite the technical advancements, got put on the shelf. So I was accepted at Columbia, but Mobile said, uh, if you would like to go to NYU Stern School part-time, we'll t bring you into the supply and logistics group, which means you'd be moving uh, oil products around the world, doing refinery modeling, learning about different crude oils, and we'll pay for your MBA. Sweet deal. Yeah. And uh, then on top of it, they gave me a two-group promotion, and I said, uh, yeah, okay, let's, let's do that. So uh, very exciting next eight years where I literally did model different refineries around the world in the mobile system, learned about different grades of crude oil. Not all crude oil is created equal. Not all fossil fuels are created equal, <laughs> but we will get to that later. Um, and all refineries have different kinds of hardware. And so there are different types of crude oils that they are favored to process or have more difficulty processing and with different product specifications depending on where you're producing in the world. So I did that for about eight years, including trading crude oil, um, which was very exciting. I was trading paper, Brent, as well as physical um, cargoes uh, of Nigerian and Brent. And um, it was a very exciting time. This was the time that the oil industry was moving from really physical to increasingly linked with the banking industry. And looking at futures, I traded the first options on Dubai futures for mobile, for example. So it was just very, very exciting. Um, then I took a step 
where uh, one person asked me once, did you do wrong to leave crude oil trading uh, and go back into technology and into environmental health and safety, legislative regulatory affairs, which I really did because I thought there was going to be a relocation coming. I thought that the company was going to move from New York City to Fairfax, Virginia, and we had a baby girl who is our daughter, who's class of 2010, Mobile. Um, my husband was working at Mobile Research. He's class of 76. My parents uh, adored their granddaughter. And I said, you know, moving to Virginia would break my father's heart. So I went back, you know, as, as I, I said one day, I just walked off a cliff and went back home to technology, expecting that my career would never go anywhere. This was the sacrifice to keep the family together and keep working and, uh, you know, kind of go back to my roots. But that's, you know, it was uh, more exciting than I thought it would be because I ended up working in environmental health and safety re regulatory and legislative affairs on Clean Water Act reauthorization, Toxic Substances Control Act, and global climate change, which was just beginning in 1991 to really hit the oil industry. And there were a lot of debates over whether this is real or not. Is this just you know, some extreme group looking at limited data and drawing these far-fetched conclusions? And uh, I looked into the models, and we had all sorts of debates on the models. This is 1991. Uh, and we would ask, what about cloud feedback? What about the ocean feedback? Can you predict the weather from last year? And the models didn't do any of that. And you'd say, you know, if I had this kind of a model for predicting a new catalyst for my refinery, or if I use these kind of results in predicting cancer treatment, you'd throw me out of the room. And yet here you're asking us to completely you know, upend the way we think about our energy business. You know, what is going on here? Um, but it still made you think, you know, if they're right, what do we do about going to a lower carbon kind of a world? You know, coal clearly becomes an issue. And then because of the Clean Water Act reauthorization, I occasionally worked on Clean Air Act as well. I said, you know, coal, coal emissions into the air, the impact on the water, um, you know, the metals poisoning, this is really not a good actor. And that kind of spurred me to say, yeah, I think I'd like to work on in natural gas. And Mobile was starting to grow its business in liquefied natural gas, where you cryogenically cool natural gas to where it's a pumpable liquid. And therefore, you can transport it by pipeline, transport it via ship um, around the world. It's portable. It becomes portable. Basically. Not as easily portable as LPG. That's propane butane. And in the United States, we have propane, you know, for your gas grill. You know, plenty of people in northern New Jersey and Flemington use um, propane tanks uh, buried under the ground to heat their homes. In Sedona, outside of the Grand Canyon, I mean, you don't want to have gas pipelines running through. You also don't want diesel trucks or heating oil trucks running through the area. And so those secondary homes are also fueled um, by LPG. So I got into the LPG business and the natural gas business, and it was fascinating. And I will say, you know, when people say, what do you look back on and that you're proud of? Frankly, I am proud that we helped the little tiny country of Qatar go from, you know, an industry that was 
basically subsisted on pearl diving to becoming the number one LNG export producer and exporter in the world at 77 million tons a year, and also the largest, uh, until this last year, largest LPG exporter as well. The United States, believe it or not, but that's another story, is now the largest LPG exporter, which is an amazing story. Um, when I first joined the oil and gas industry, America was dependent on imports to the tune of 50% of its um, oil demand. And so it was a whole synthfuels period. You know, how do we become independent of the Middle East oil? And, you know, how do we become more energy efficient, energy conservation? And now here we are looking at, you know, I'm looking at the year 2000 or so, uh, looking at LNG growth for Japan and Japan, uh, Korea and China. And at that time, China had not imported any LNG, but we were looking at it as a major market, saying, you know, you've got people here who really are, um, you know, their energy consumption is really low. I mean, you can say America's terribly wasteful, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but the China <laughs> consumption of energy was well below minimum. Um, in year 2000, and we said natural gas has a place. They're burning coal. They're burning wood. Um, I was just saying to Tiger, you know, when we first went back to China, seeing people go up and down mountains with, you know, to in order to collect firewood and and bring it back back down the mountain. This was still happening in rural China, and LPG uh, in canisters delivered to your home, so that in the winter time you don't have, don't have to go out collecting uh, wood. That you don't have to be burning coal, which is certainly a portable alternative, but coal is dirty. You know, you have the the smoke from the coal, you're breathing it in the kitchen. Um, and then the LPG, as I mentioned, as a cooking fuel, is uh, it's a huge deal for the developing countries such as Indonesia and India, where historically they were using kerosene for cooking. And kerosene, for those who aren't familiar, it's a, kind of a smoky product. It's, a, it's another byproduct out of refining crude oil. And uh, one of my colleagues remembered uh, growing up as a child in India, and they cooked with kerosene in the kitchen. And the small kids are with mom in the kitchen all the time, and you've got this oily, tarry film to the walls kind of dripping, and it's kind of sticky. And the food, after they shifted over to LPG, tasted better. It tasted cleaner. The air was cleaner. And, and, you know, this is a huge impact on the vulnerable population. It's like secondhand smoke. Um, so LPG was, uh, you know, was a, a big product coming out of Qatar and moving into China, moving into Japan, Korea, Indonesia, and India. Um, the first LNG that went into India was supplied by Mobil. It was a, a source of pride that um, India was actually going into uh, natural gas for power generation. Until then, they had been burning naphtha. Naphtha is a kissing cousin to gasoline. So imagine burning gasoline in order to produce electricity. It was very expensive, and it just made no sense, but it was easy for them to do, and no one wanted to invest in India, and we did. And, uh, and you know, India is now a significant consumer of LNG as well. Um, it's going to be interesting because, you know, the debate in looking forward on trying to decarbonize you know, we talk about decarbonizing in certain parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, they want energy. And so then the question is, if you don't provide them with natural gas, what are they going to use? Well, if they domestically have coal, they're going to be burning coal. And coal 
produces twice as much CO2 per million BTU as natural gas, not to mention, as I mentioned earlier, all the pollution that you get from it. So, you know, really from my perspective as someone who's been in industry, I'd like to see more natural gas and I'd like to not see coal at all. In terms of solar energy, clean energy is always great, of course. The question becomes affordability and reliability and how do you get affordable, reliable energy to the people. The challenge with solar, you've got the distributed grids, which is great. And when you've got a hot, sunny climate, like in San Diego, uh, that's great. But what happens when it's nighttime? What happens, you know, do you have enough storage at night to handle what you get during the daytime to carry you through the night? Because if you don't and you have the break in electricity uh, service, what does that do? If it's a refrigerator, now your food's spoiling. You know, if you've if you're a, a young mother with uh, the, with milk for your child, now your milk's gone bad, right? And and how do you manage uh, this this balance? Um, I think over time we'll get there. But we've said, you know, battery storage is like a holy grail. That's that's a key element. Another one is uh, electricity transmission losses, being able to boost signals um, along the way. But I mean, stuff is moving. The the key trends that we're seeing now, the move toward uh, renewables as much as possible is one element. Um, as I said, I would like to see less and less coal. And we are seeing that in some areas. Um, we're just not seeing um, as little coal addition as I would like to see. The United States is decommissioning various coal-fired power plants. But they're still adding some as well, which I find interesting. So for all the people who say we shouldn't be adding natural gas-fired power plants, I say, well, yeah, and what about the coal? Why is that happening at all? Um, well, that's, that totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, we're trying to reduce. Why are you adding? And then in India, and it was written up in the New York Times, there's this billionaire who's putting in a deal. I think it's been put in place where he's going to um, – have coal produced in Australia, and it's going to be shipped to India to a coal-fired power plant in India, which will produce electricity for India and also export to Bangladesh. So we not only have coal being mined in its coal-fired power plant, we've also got the carbon footprint of shipping this coal from Australia all the way to India. I mean, it's just incredible to me that this is happening, but he's a billionaire and that's a project he wanted to have happen. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to that, that we can unfold from, from that conversation. I mean, why don't we talk about just ExxonMobil for, for a little bit? I mean, you were talking about this whole carbon free sort of vision and ExxonMobil has been a proponent of a revenue neutral carbon tax to incentivize emission reductions. So in your opinion, do you think a carbon tax would work at all in terms of helping out the climate change, reducing emissions? It's not clear to me whether it's a carbon tax or some kind of a carbon trading system that would work. But I do agree that um, if we could get governments to agree to have a trading system or a tax, you know, think of a carbon tax like a value-added tax. Right. So if you're trying to put in something that is very intense, high carbon emitting, you're going to have a penalty, which is going to try to push you in the direction of the lower carbon. I, mean, I think the capitalist approach uh, typically works. 
even in Russia, which used to be a record country for flaring natural gas, when Putin put in the penalties for flaring, saying that you were not, um, I think flaring had to be reduced by like 98% or something. And if you were above, then there were serious penalties. I mean, one company paid um, in the millions. And so you'd see, you know, that impact. There's very little flaring, at least very little flaring that they report um, in Russia now compared to what we saw 10 years ago. So, you know, com- if you think about corporations um, or utilities, you know, anyone who has a P&L to report, putting some kind of a financial incentive to do the right thing or financial penalty to do the wrong thing makes sense. The key becomes um, consistency, And if you have um, a carbon tax that only lasts for three years, that's going to be a mess. So we're saying that maybe in a place like the United States, we're not sure it's something that's going to keep going per se, right? Even though it could be pretty effective. I I mean, I could say the oxygenates that were um, put into gasoline, and this was in the 1990s, which Mobile was not in favor of. Um, it was to, at the time, the thinking was it would be methyl tertiary butyl ether. Um, and our toxicologist said, we've never had 10% of a single compound in gasoline. We don't really understand what the toxicology and human effects are going to be. We have hundreds of compounds that are just coming out of nature and after processing, and it's kind of like, um, you know, there's such a mix that no one compound can really create a problem. Now you're talking about putting in methyl tertiary butyl ether up to 10% in gasoline, and we don't fully understand the health effects. And so our toxicologist said, we're really not in favor of this. So, so and they we... were right, because within a few years, after the industry had fully invested and put in storage tanks for the methyl tertiary butyl ether, there were studies of cancer issues. And so it became banned. Methyl tertiary butyl ether is banned in gasoline now. The replacement was ethanol. So what happened with ethanol? Okay, so this was good for the sugar lobbies, you know, good for the grain companies. But the U.S. is such an enormous market. It meant it was importing ethanol from other countries, like Brazil, like reducing the rainforest, deforesting in order to convert these beautiful, amazing, centuries-old rainforests into sugarcane plantations, increasing the cost of grain on a global basis, such that the cost of bread in Nigeria went up three times. You know, again, we're talking about impacts on the most vulnerable population in order to feed America's gasoline demand. You can understand why the rest of the world looks at America and says, you're just incredibly selfish. And here you are telling me I'm not allowed to do this. So, so in essence, we don't know. So ExxonMobil has been a proponent of the revenue-neutral carbon tax to incentivize uh, emission reductions. And Nancy, I guess your thoughts on that is that we can – that could be an effective measure, like a value-added tax uh, on certain products, and then reduce the emission that way. But – uh, we're not sure of the side effects or externalities that kind of policy would have on the rest of the world. Um, so I would say, uh, let me phrase it a little bit differently. The The issue is setting up a good system and then having it applied consistently and for a, conti- a, a significant period of time. 
if we put something in place that has a lot of loopholes, that has a lot of compliance issues, and you have certain companies doing it and other companies don't, certain countries participating, certain other countries don't, um, and then it falls apart after three or four years, we probably will not have accomplished very much. Um, the issues of um, consistent regulations on a governmental level are really important. The um, We've seen in Indonesia and India, I mentioned earlier, uh, kerosene to LPG. They were using kerosene as a cooking fuel. The government put in a major program, and this has been a multi-year program of subsidizing LPG, even giving free cooking units for LPG in order to encourage cleaner cooking fuels in the home, which improves the health for their vulnerable populations, women and children, who are the ones who are typically in the kitchen, um, and, but just general air quality. Right? Um, if you're looking at what happens on a, on a regulatory basis, and now I'll talk from an environmental standpoint, uh, in the United States, we have seen issues in the past with inconsistent application of the regulations. So you may have certain companies that are um, where the, the EPA takes a very hard line on, the, on permitting, particularly if they're a very large company, and you may find smaller companies that are able to negotiate their way out of it. Uh, I'll give you an example once. Uh, Mobile used to have a refinery in southern New Jersey, Paulsboro Refinery. And uh, one of our toxicologists was there when New Jersey EPA was there taking water samples. These were samples from the effluent, what gets discharged from the refinery. So EPA took their samples. She took the same samples. Um, when the EPA came back and said, Mobile, you are out of compliance with respect to your permit, she said, I understand that, but let me also show you the data of the water that came into the system. So we were out of compliance, let's say 20% over. I'm just making that up. I don't remember the actual numbers. But what went in was 10 times worse. In other words, we had cleaned up 90% of the pollutants coming in, and we were still in exceedance. So the water coming in from the public waterways was 10 times above the permit. How did this happen? Because it clearly wasn't coming from our plant. It was from smaller plants, smaller companies that were discharging into the waterways. And because they were smaller plants, they were covered under exemptions. But they were polluting over decades. And it's not going anywhere. The metals they were, you know, dumping in there were just building up over time. So, you know, the whole issue of being consistent in the application. Think about it in terms of school, right? You work really hard for a paper. One student gets an A. Another student has a really nice lunch with the professor, and they get an A. This is not, you know, you can say, well, the student who had the nice lunch with the professor is going to suffer because he didn't do the work. He didn't learn as much. He's not doing the right thing. It's like, yeah, and the one who worked really hard isn't going to feel particularly happy. <laughs> And the same type of thing happens in industry. When you have inconsistent application of the regulations, you're not going to get the right results. And you have people then saying, human nature, why should I do the right thing? 
So what kind of system do you think would be um, less prone to those type of loopholes and those smaller companies trying to circumvent um, certain um, regulations? Do you think it's a cap-and-trade system um, for companies' emissions, or do you think it's something more strict, as in um, certain emission standards that each company has to make? I personally like cap-and-trade, um, and I, I think that's because... I think you know as you go up the uh, as you go up the curve, the tighter and tighter it gets, the more and more expensive it gets, and there are going to be certain applications where it's more cost effective to help the little guy out and keep those pollutions from happening, and that's going to be a lot cheaper than asking for the last five percent out of the company that's already invested so much over the years. I'm thinking in terms of what's the best outcome for society, for the air we all breathe. Um, I do recognize that um, it's probably easier from an agency perspective to set targets for individual companies because the metrics are much easier. That would be something like a just a tax that would be scalable. Based it could on be an individual much. tax. It could be an individual permit, mm -hmm. right? And and so I can understand, um, you know, from an agency perspective, that's the easiest thing. Right. But in so far as you will probably end up with some of the smaller companies then not doing the right thing, right. we may end up still with a pretty highly polluted system. Right. And, but then how would you prevent the same thing happening with the cap-and-trade in terms of the emissions credits that you do give to each company? How, do, how many credits does a small company get versus a large company like ExxonMobil? So, so that I haven't looked at that carefully mm -hmm. enough. I mean, that, the devil's in the details on this. And um, James Baker, I don't know if you yes, heard. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I was there at his talk. And I mean, unfortunately, we haven't heard a whole lot about it recently, given right. the state of the White House. Um, but you know, I, I think that's an experiment that would be worth taking. And, right. I, and I think it's one of those things, if you try to nail it down too tightly in the beginning, we may never get there. Right. Sometimes you just have to try the experiment and then fine-tune as we go along. Right. No, that, I think that um, James Baker speaking out on it, it's it's really inspiring to see that there's bipartisan support for climate change. And that, I think that's evident from that. Um, so I guess moving on with um, – so big oil companies like ExxonMobil are some of the biggest polluters in the world. But they also are some of the leading innovators in the um, transition to renewable energy. So um, could you comment on this tension in the media between large oil companies, you know, being the, um, the polluters but also the innovators in this space? So – I don't know that I really believe that the oil companies are the largest innovators. I tend to think the largest innovators are probably at university think tanks or government-sponsored, funded research projects. Um, I think they, they do what they can, but in general, the way our system is set up, um, I think it's hard for an oil company to really get competitive advantage in the renewable space. Because they're typically not going to get the type of government support that a smaller standalone solar or wind company is going to get. I, I think it's just the way the structure of our industry is set up. So, yes, ExxonMobil is working on carbon sequestration. They've worked on bioalgae. I mean, they're doing some neat stuff. You know, Shell is also doing some neat stuff. 
um, but I wouldn't call them the leading innovators. Do you think they genuinely want to pursue some of those technology or they're just trying to hedge Yeah, how are they going to defend So I would say it depends on the company. Every company has a different approach. Um, I think certain companies have a sense of... So so mobile had a solar company, mobile uh, Tyco Solar Company, had it for 20 years, uh, did a lot of advances in research, and finally shut it down. And uh, that was in, uh, I think, 1983 or so that they shut it down. And it was because um, at that time, the view, no, 1993, excuse me, that it was shut down. Um, the view was the market was small at that time, and the technology innovations were not enough to make it competitive with natural gas. Also, 1993, you know, global climate change was not a big, it was making some noise. Yes, there was the UN, you know, et cetera, but, you know, the, the, um, the findings from the IPCC reports were not definitive yet either. So, you know, there was work and they said, this doesn't make sense. Better to let, you know, a company where the management is fully focused on solar, you know, they should do the work and we'll focus on what we do best. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain, um, I mean, you read Harvard Business School articles, right, HBR articles, and, you know, the core competencies, doing what you do well, as opposed to diversifying too far. Um, I can also argue when the time comes where renewables are truly mainstream, you could see any of the major oil companies buying one of those renewable companies and remaking itself, reinventing itself, you know, right. becoming a joint venture and, and transitioning across. Do, do you have any uh, opinion on the sort of the moral ethical debate in that sense? Because I guess there's this sort of irreconcilable tension between the fact that um, a lot of people think they are the biggest polluters and, yeah, you're kind of leading the innovation, but you are also sort of the one creating the problem for us, whereas a lot of other people would would argue because they're in this sort of market dominance position and because we inevitably rely on them as a society, on those big oil companies, uh, they're doing all they could to, to lead to the next trend, sort of transition to the next phase, but this is kind of the best we can do. So. I, I don't know if there's because I guess so much of the media, as Peyton was just saying, and so much of the uh, the public sentiment right now is kind of you know either super against those big big oil, big tech, mm-hmm. big pharma, right? And, and I think we see that big in, banking exactly yes. right. And and, and uh, I don't know. Do you, do you have any have any uh, viewpoints on some of those matters? So I think you know one has to be careful. One, you know, not all fossil fuels are created equal, right? Coal is different from natural gas, right? Right. But the other thing is to think about, so so I read someplace someone saying we should ban fossil fuels tomorrow. And I said, okay, let's do a thought experiment. Yeah. Let's say we ban fossil fuels tomorrow. So literally we can't drive our cars. You know, what happens when grandma has a heart attack? How do we get her to the hospital? Um, the uh, The electricity doesn't keep. Right, and insofar as you're in a town that's fueled by natural gas-fired power plants, you've now lost your electricity. So pretty soon your iPhone won't work. Neither will your Macs or Dells, and your refrigerator is going to get warm, and your food's going to spoil. And how do the farmers get their food produce to the supermarkets to get to you? Um, are we going back to horses? You know, how do we? actually function if you suddenly ban fossil fuels. Um, It hit me when I was doing West African 
um, oil products, actually. One day I was, uh, I was providing aviation gasoline to this little country in West Africa. And I said, so what do you do with the aviation gasoline? This was a very niche product. You know, it goes into small piper planes. And he said, oh, just last week we had a boy who had a terrible accident. And with the Avgas, we were able to fly him to Dakar where he had special surgery and was able to save his leg. Or um, next month we're planning to have um, a spraying um, for the locusts that will be coming. And if we don't spray for the locusts, they'll completely eat the crop and people will starve to death. So, you know, when we talk about everything being as a pollutant, um, you know, this isn't pollution like uh, I'm throwing plastic bottles all over the place and gum wrappers. This is a byproduct of a fuel that we use all through our lives. And if we suddenly stop it, so here's another example, 2017, uh, China, northern China. So air quality has been an issue for the last decade where it's becoming more uh, visible. And the 2013, I think, was that YouTube video that went viral. Right. With the, the picture woman. of the two, um, the, the pictures of Beijing, like, seven days apart or something with the air quality, and then afterwards the picture was very clear. I think it was something with the Beijing Olympics. Yes, yes. They, they, they stopped all coal in, in, in anticipation of the Beijing Olympics. They similarly stopped all coal briquettes at all the tea houses. They had to switch to LPG um, temporarily. But this is um, out in rural China. And the plan had been for natural gas pipelines to come in. And so they had put in a ban for coal. Now, the entire, all these little towns were built around coal heating. All the furnaces, the schools, et cetera, were all based on coal. And now you have this ban. And it was a very cold winter. And the natural gas project had been delayed. There was no natural gas. No one can burn coal. And you've got a really cold winter. The children were having classes, and this is written up in the New York Times. The children were having classes outside of the school in the daylight because it was warmer outside in the freezing temperatures than it was in the school, of course, because the school was heated by coal and they couldn't burn coal. So, you know, when we talk about we have to do something and we have to ban something or we have to, you know, put in this transition, we need to think about who this impacts. Because I will say, we in Princeton are very privileged. You turn on a light switch, you get the lights. You know, your electricity runs. Anything goes wrong, you call up somebody and you, you know, say, please come fix it. There are still people in parts of the world where it's two hours to go collect wood. It's two hours to go get water to bring back. You know, it's, uh, they're walking to get there. And uh, how do you say to those people, well, you have to wait. You, you have to keep, you know, continuing with the same practice you've had for centuries. And no, you can't have LPG. You know, you got to just keep burning wood. And no, we don't let you burn coal. But actually, we don't want you burning wood either because that also has high carbon emissions. So actually, we don't want you to burn anything. So now what? So, so it sounds like that you are coming more from a realist Right. point of view in the sense that we need to address the more immediate problems like poverty or, or 
um, having basic, fulfilling basic human needs before even starting this conversation. I don't know that I would say before starting it, but I think it needs to be a part of it. Right, just facilitating an easier transition. You can't have a black and white, you know, we're going to stop now. Um, But I guess I would ask, like, if if it isn't maybe um, an oil producing or, you know, an energy producing company that um, is going to be changing its its energy profile so quickly, then who is responsible for leading this energy transition? Is it a top top-down approach, like a certain policy that says, okay, we're going to try to hit this goal by 2050, um, and those types of regulations would follow? Or do you think it's more of a consumer consumer choice and other companies that are consuming energy? Like Amazon recently declared its intention to go 80% um, renewable by 2024 and carbon neutral by 2040, or net zero by um, 2040. So do you think it's those... Um, those corporations that are responsible, or do you think it's more of the government's responsibility to enact some type of policy? Um, I think this is complicated enough. It's going to take everybody doing an element of it. You know, I'll say on a very simple basis, why aren't we all driving hybrids? Why aren't we all driving higher fuel economy, highest fuel economy, whatever that should be, 40, 50, 60 miles to the gallon? You know, why are there still F-150s being sold, getting, if you're lucky, 10 miles to the gallon? And the point is not to have an all-electric F-150. That's not the point. You know, it's energy conservation. It's thinking about fuel efficiency of any type of fuel. Right, because that's know, better than what it's what is driven now, too. Right, exactly. So to me, it's it's all of the above. The, uh, the, the corporate... Um, targets like in Amazon or Google, they're simply larger versions of a consumer, mm-hmm. right? You simply have the consumers who have a lot of power that they're able to request this. And they have a lot of uh, discretionary income mm-hmm. that they're able to afford the transition and the inevitable um, temp- you know, transitional higher costs. Because anytime you do something new, there's going to be unexpected costs. There's going to be contingencies. We're engineers. We understand that. Nothing goes perfectly. Nothing right. new will go perfectly. And you have to allow for that. Mm-hmm. If you have deep pockets, you can afford it. If you're a small little you know, startup company, it's more challenging. Right. But from an individual perspective, I mean, we have LED. Every light bulb in our house is now LED. You know, we have a hybrid sitting in the garage. Hybrid technology has been around well over 20 years. I mean, I led a study in mobile on automotive fuel, you know, optimization systems, and hybrids were, you know, the best thing. And this was in 1995. Wow. And yet hybrids are a small share. Of the American vehicle population. Mm -hmm. China was the leading producer of electric vehicles last year, 956,000 vehicles. That's still a tiny share of the world population of vehicles. Of those, only one quarter were hybrid. The rest were electric plug-in. The United States was the number two producer, 300-something thousand. That's a really small share compared to China. And that's because the American consumer is not buying. We should be able to do better. Uh, yeah, and one last piece. Last year, the U.S. carbon emissions went up compared to 2017. So we were just talking about the comparison between China and the U.S. I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, 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 on that front. Do you think 
China, because a lot of people are presenting this vision where China is replacing the U.S. as sort of the leader in, um, you know, preventing climate change and and renewable energy innovations and that stuff. Especially after since Trump pulled out out of the the climate change accord. So I don't I don't know what your thoughts on comparing the two countries. Do you think China is actually making a lot of progress more than the West or? So, from a manufacturing perspective, China is the number one producer for solar panels. Right. They are also the number one producer of electric vehicles. So, in that regard, from a manufacturing-based perspective, you know, when you're the biggest, by definition, you have scale. Hard to say that there's not a, some sort of a competitive advantage there.、Um, but China is continuing to add coal. They're also adding. Solar and wind, but they are also continuing to add coal in some areas, and、mm-hmm. as well as natural gas. I would love to see them not adding coal. I mean, they're not only using indigenous coal; they're also importing coal、right. from Australia. And again, from a pollution, air quality, as well as carbon perspective, you know, why is China doing that?、Right. And the co- and the issue is cost. That carbon.、Um, That the that the coal-fired power plants are still considered to be cheaper. The coal is the price of coal is just dropping due to the lack of the demand,、mm-hmm. and、uh, and they're able to you know supply the cheapest. And of course, it's reliable, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you have a snowstorm; the coal-fired power plant's still going to run. Yeah. Whereas worrying about solar or wind, you know, you're at the mercy of the weather. That's、right. the reality of it. And and so that becomes another question of when you look at the economics of one type of energy type versus another. And I'm not an expert in renewable fuels at all. And I was just trying to kind of <laughs> even trying to keep up with what's going on in the literature.、Mm-hmm. I personally find it very confusing trying to figure out when it's apples and apples and apples and oranges. Right. You give me that example about the article that you just read this afternoon. Right. You, yeah. I, I just read an article this afternoon where the title said. Solar energy is more attractive than gas-fired power plants, and I said, "Oh, wow! Okay, so I need to read this、right. and understand this." And then you go into the details, and there's this graph that shows declining costs over time of solar、uh, electricity and an increasing cost for gas-fired、mm-hmm. electricity. And say, "So why is the gas-fired electricity cost going up?" And it's、right. because over time the assumption is the utilization will go down, because more and more everyone will be moving to solar,、right. and therefore the use in the natural gas will go down, and so、right. the the maintenance costs, etc., will cause you know the unit cost to go up. Now、oh, so、that may or not be、assumption. true, right? right? So you really have to look at, and then the the other element on the solar, you know, so why are the solar costs、um, coming down? How are they coming down? What's in the solar costs? So one element was solar cost. Another element was storage,、mm-hmm. and storage is a key issue. So the assumption that those costs will go down, which I think、mm-hmm. is perfectly reasonable, they should go down as the technology improves. It should go down. What the right, you know, what the right angle, <laughs> you know,、right. rate is, I don't know, but sure, directionally it should go down. And then the last element was demand side management. So what does demand side management mean to you? It probably means. Energy efficiency, maybe insulation, you know, something maybe demand conservation or, or timing energy use to pricing. And, and then the question is, why would you only apply the demand side management element, which is probably a credit,、mm-hmm. to the solar energy? Wouldn't it also apply to the natural gas? Right. 
Well, I guess because a lot of the natural gas plants are used as peaker plants in, you know, height um, energy demand. That's when you're going to be using a gas-fired plant. I guess that it would could also... be in the base load too. Though. Right, right. That's true. I mean, the yeah, advantage... it's definitely difficult to standardize across energy, you know, different energy types, um, especially on a cost perspective, but also on an output perspective. You know, obviously, um, dollar per kilowatt hour is like a, a very often used standard, but it is difficult because solar, are you including the soft cost of solar? Are you including insulation cost? Are you, you know, it's difficult to are get... Are including a, the storage? Right, Are you the only storage, in, yeah. considering the costs for when you're getting the sun? Right, because of course, And then that's what about free, at night? Yeah, right. Well, what happens at night? Right. So, so, and are you standardizing it to the hours of production, or just to, or the, or for the whole cycle, the whole day? Exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's. And touching back on, you know, China's coal production, it's it's interesting that there are still so much, so many coal-fired power plants that are planning to be brought in at the same time when. So, you know, China is a leader in solar panel production. So um, I think it's difficult to see the both sides of it, you know, where they're they're innovating in the space, but also, you know, planning development in coal, which a lot of people would say is not cost effective compared to renewables at this point. So I guess um, I would ask um, how you see the energy profile of the U.S. playing out in the next few years, um, kind of what share. Obviously, I think coal will be in decline, but um, I am particularly interested in natural gas, how that will increase um, as we integrate more renewables, how it'll ease the renewable energy um, integration, but I worry that maybe we might get kind of stuck with natural gas in 20 years where we're so reliant on it as a dispatchable resource that it's difficult to move away from and just rely more so on renewable energy. Yeah, the natural gas story is an amazing one. Um, it was over 10 years ago that we thought the U.S. was going to have to import natural gas. Right, right. I mean, ExxonMobil was expecting. I mean, some folks were shaking their heads saying it would never happen. Other folks were saying, hey, from what we can see, the cost of natural gas from domestic production is going to be more expensive than importing from Qatar. Right. And so we had a project to import. Wow. And and that being said, how expensive natural gas is to to transport compared to coal specifically, something like three times or... Right. 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 But now what's happened is with the the shale revolution, the combination of horizontal drilling and and hydraulic fracking has brought the cost down incredibly. Mm -hmm. And that the U.S. is now... um, the largest oil producer in the world. It now mm-hmm. exceeds Saudi Arabia, uh, that it's exporting LNG and will right. become within five years a major LNG exporter is incredible. Mm-hmm. What that means is when you're awash in this fuel, it's really cheap. Right, and difficult to move away from. Um, you know, in, in Texas, which is where a lot of the shale production is occurring, it's not a coincidence. That's where a lot of the natural gas power plants are being built. Uh, right. The weather is horrible. Having lived in Houston, mm-hmm. I can tell you, so you really I'm from need Houston. Your air- yes. <laughs> so we lived in West U for 13 years, and I'm telling you, you need air conditioning. Otherwise, you wouldn't live in Houston. Right. So, you know, brownouts are unacceptable. People get really upset <laughs> right. when they don't get their air conditioning. Um, you know, maybe desalination plants, worrying about, you know, and and water purification plants as well. So, you know, a lot of people move from other parts of the country to Houston. 
mm-hmm. uh, particularly after the 2008-9 financial crisis, and, and the energy sector was was booming. Right. That population is there, and those people, you know, want their energy, and they want to drive their F-150s as well. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> now, how do you, you know, the natural gas that's there, some of it is a byproduct of producing shale oil, and they have to find a home for it. Right. There have been times when the price of gas and Henry, so that, that study I mentioned about solar energy versus uh, gas-fired, um, they, there was one of their earlier charts that showed it was competitive when the, Henry, when the price of gas was $5 a million BTU, and it was a range between 3 and 5 When it was $3, it wasn't attractive. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, the solar was not attractive, and at $5, it was attractive. Well, you know, when you're, when you're trying not to flare, right. so you have to find a home for your natural gas, you can get really cheap natural gas for your power plants. Right, because you're basically paying people to take it off your hands. To a large extent, uh, which from a producer's standpoint is not good economics, but nevertheless, that's where you are. Um, I I don't know how solar competes with that. I also, uh, I mean, I would have thought there would be a synergy between the solar and the natural gas, that when you, that when you, if you optimize the system, you have enough solar panels to to take from the sun what you can during the day, but then when the sun's out, then you have your, you know, your natural gas to cover your, your needs at night. I mean, so if you're driving electric cars and you're charging at night because that's when you would tend to think it would be cheapest, mm-hmm. um, you know, I hope your base load is, or, or your nighttime load is coming from marginal natural gas and not marginal coal. Otherwise, you're not really helping the environment as much as you think. Right. So almost the solar would take on, you know, as much energy production as it could, and then natural gas would come in and fill those gaps. Right. But I guess with that, you would you would need a lot of your battery technology and storage would be very helpful. Yes. So a lot exactly. of people say that subsidies targeted at storage might be more effective than a subsidy targeted at um, solar solar directly. I think the challenge with subsidies is one's ability to manage them. You know, when you get out-of-control subsidies and then you just have wastage and inefficiency in the system. Right, right. Like around, like, 08, a lot of, you know, we had a lot of um, difficulty with funding certain companies and and that type of thing with subsidies directly. Exactly, exactly. I mean, what happened in Western Europe at one point, so the government, various governments, country governments, um, mandated... Uh, that the utility companies put in renewable Mm -hmm. um, fired power plants. But the issue was what happened when you couldn't get electricity from it, which meant they all had to build backup natural gas-fired power plants. So they doubled their capital investment. Because when the weather's bad during the day, you can't say, I'm sorry, but the weather's bad. You can't have your electricity. So they had to meet the peak demand. So they had to install enough gas-fired power plants to meet peak demand and also install as much solar. Mm-hmm. which made for some very challenging economics. And since a lot of these were government utilities, that hasn't helped the economies of those countries either. Right, yeah. Even Germany, you know, shipping off electricity to neighboring um, countries when they're overproducing on the grid. It's quite interesting, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess uh, Peyton was just asking you about sort of some of the trends we're seeing in energy uh, today. And you were talking about the potential synergy that you were hoping to see between solar and natural gas. I was wondering, what about some of the challenges and criticisms? Because I guess we, we often talk about 
uh, there's so much again, so much criticism against the big oil. I guess people label it in a very right. overgeneralizing way. But what are some of the criticism you think are pretty well founded? What are some of the challenges that you do recognize? What are some of the solutions for it? Would love to hear your thoughts on those fronts. So, every, so let me turn this question around. You know, if I was giving advice to students、uh, who are looking at what do I want to do in the energy space. You know, looking at junior, you know, juniors or seniors. What do I want to do for internships or for my next permanent job? You know, what do I look at? And I think this is an amazing time to go into the energy space because, you know, it's not just oil and gas and fossil fuels, and it's not just solar and wind. I mean, you have a broad range right now, and everything's under study. I mean, from a policy perspective, it's fascinating in terms of. You know, small companies that are installing, you know, distributed grids or or building、um, strategies for major utility companies to figure out where are they going to be in 20 years, as well as where are the Exxon Mobil, Shell, and and、uh, and Totals going to be in the year. But I will also say every company is different. Just like fossil fuels are not created equal, each major company has its own personality. And its own set of values, and I would say research each company very carefully. I would also say for the same thing for the independent and the small companies.、Um, the smaller companies、um, of any type, whether you're talking pharma or energy or anything, the smaller companies may have some neat innovations. They may also be under more profit pressures. Which may cause them to do what we might objectively say is the wrong thing, but they're trying—they're fighting for their survival, and so you just need to understand that as you're going into looking at opportunities.、Um, I was saying to Tiger earlier after Valdez,、um, Exxon went through a major, and, and remember, I came from the mobile side, but the Exxon Corporation went through a major kind of a, a reinventing of itself with its operations integrity management system. To where, when Macondo happened in the U.S. Gulf, Rex Tillerson, who was the CEO at the time, went on the Hill saying, "If it had been an Exxon Mobil project, Macondo and that spill would not have happened." And I believe it, because the management system is so tight, and the checks and balances, and the sense of values, and that we have a license to operate, and we will not violate that license to operate, so that we can walk away. From situations, and you can do that because we have deep pockets.、Mm-hmm. But not every company will do that,、mm-hmm. and so understanding the values of the company and and how it fits with your own values is really important. Yeah. So is it you know more advice to students looking to get into the energy industry with so many companies being different?、Um, how would you recommend going about you know picking one or with just so much. Change in the in the industry, you know, going to a wind company or a solar company, like how would that kind of pigeonhole people in a way? Which is also in addition, if I'm just an average citizen, how do I make myself a little bit more educated and more nuanced when I look at the energy sector and not make overgeneralizing comments on on those things? How do we? How do people、mm. like me who don't know much about energy、uh, get there? It's not easy, because I mean, I just did a, a search on、uh, costs of solar power versus gas 
on right. the internet. And you have to constantly do it because it, it's constantly changing. And yeah. the sources, you know, they were contradicting each other. You know, one said gas was, you know, there was no way solar was competitive. Another one said solar is competitive now. You know, we should ban fossil fuels now. I mean, it's just all over the place. It's, I w- it is really not easy. I, I don't have an easy answer for you. I wish I did. Okay, no, that that's totally a fair answer. I feel like a lot of the questions that we ask our guests are very grand topics that are very hard to to pin down the, a specific answer for. Um, I mean, it's not. I mean, you could look at the American Petroleum Institute, which is the trade association for the oil and gas industry, and see what some of their position papers are. Having worked on working groups in the API. You know, they do try to report what's going on in the industry so that it's not company specific. But once you have a, a general working vocabulary, a sense of the industry, honestly, you have to look at each company individually. It's 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 like, uh, you know, investing. Yeah, go through their K-1s, look right. at their sustainability reports, look at their corporate responsibility reports, the annual reports. Right. Um, and like what we were saying on, you know, the panel at the Energy Association just last week, we were talking about, you know, how you do have to go through the 10K statements and, and see exactly where the company is because so many are coming out with um, campaigns. Marketing statements. Right, exactly. And but it's you kind of have really to, good marketing. Right, you have to make sure because so many companies, I think, are saying they want to go carbon neutral by a certain time. Net, You know, they're going to get 90% of their energy f- needs from renewables. Um, and it's difficult to know that they will all, you know, make those standards. And what are they doing now to make a goal that they have 30 years down the line? It's difficult. It's difficult to know for sure. Right. Right. And so, and insofar as there are, you know, annual write-ups of what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, seeing what they're doing and right. how, what kind of progress year on year are they actually making. Right. Uh, before we, we end the interview, I want to just tie back your work experience uh, back to – your experience at Princeton for a little bit. I, I know you're, you've been very dedicated to Princeton Alumni Network. You served as the Asian American Alumni Association co-chair as well as uh, the founder of the Lin Family Endowment for Asian American Studies. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about your history and involvement with Princeton uh, and some of those initiatives that you've taken on? So when I came to Princeton to major in chemical engineering, I did not come from a technical background. My father was uh, an economist who, because of the need, um, ended up being an interpreter and kind of a community social worker for Chinese immigrants in New York City um, and around the country as needed. My mother was a medical social worker at New York Hospital, Cornell Medical Center. So I came from a uh, social services, you know, serving the people kind of a background, and here I was going into a hard technical um, area. And I learned a lot at Princeton, and the training served me well, quite frankly. I got my job at Mobile because I took a graduate-level course from Paul Weiss, as I mentioned, who was the head of uh, Mobile Central Research Division. And uh, he was an amazing mentor and sponsor for me uh, in my early years at Mobile. The coming back to Princeton 
Um, so there were a lot of, uh, shall we say, the personal side of being Asian that I put on a shelf as I worked up the corporate ladder, learning, having to reinvent myself time and time again, working across the value chain, working in technology, supply and distribution, back to technology, environmental health and safety, LNG business, developing 20-year natural gas and natural gas liquid supply demand price outlooks, building alignment across the corporation to get a an aligned view at the most senior levels to make multi-billion dollar bets. You have people with strong views and lots of questions, and if you're not prepared to answer their questions and or get their answers back to them quickly, you lose the momentum and you lose the opportunity to affect change. So it was a fascinating time. Uh, at the same time, I was still married with two kids, looking after my parents in New York City, my in-laws. You know, very, very challenging time, and uh, I had very little time for Princeton apart from coming back at every five years for reunions, mm-hmm. um, particularly when we lived in Houston. So when we came back and decided we would retire in Princeton, um, I had the advantage of uh, benefit of uh, folks inviting me to join the Asian American Alumni Association, started to go to events, started to attend lectures in Asian American studies on campus. And that was where I learned more about my family history, actually. I learned that my father was a Boxer Rebellion indemnity scholar, that his education in the United States was funded by Chinese funds, which were indemnification payments to the United States. Mm. And he came to the U.S. in 1926 and then went to Princeton as well after um, Chicago. So... Um, you know, just learning about Asian American history, being able to attend lectures. I attended a course on Asian capital markets. I mean, it's just been fabulous being back here and reconnecting with the university, old mobile colleagues as well, mobile oil colleagues. And um, we're having, my husband and I are having a great time connecting with the alumni as well as our, our former professors. How, how tough was it to be like an Asian woman? In, in engineering, uh, too. Yeah, I uh, mean, in the energy sector, I guess, which would be predominantly white males. It was, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when I, um, when I became an executive at Mobile, I was the only Asian female executive. And when I retired from ExxonMobil, um, it was me and my replacement who were the only Asian female executives at ExxonMobil. And my replacement, by the way, is also a Princeton CBE. I re wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, uh, yeah, I would say Princeton made a difference. You tell people you have a chemical engineering degree from Princeton, and they sit back a little bit. And when you present a technical analysis and it's sound, and they say, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand why you're where you are. Um, but yes, time and time again, as I was put into positions of responsibility and leading teams, um, and frankly, particularly after the merger, the mobile um, personality, because it was a Northeast company, a New York City company, was frankly used to kind of some diversity ahead of mm-hmm. um, a Houston, com- Texas company. And so there were folks from the Exxon side who were like, who are you and why should we listen to you? Yeah, to and, uh, constantly be proving yourself. To yes, you. yeah. and it was very satisfying when people would say, "Yeah, <laughs> I really love working with you." You know, I, you know, we had really good dialogue. We really learned yeah. a lot. We really accomplished stuff. You know, it was, um, you know, people would be surprised at how well um, we were able to work together. 
That's awesome. And that was we, very satisfying. And the students, I mean, we love having people like you come back and kind of talk to some students and um, be involved with things on campus because it's truly like such a great learning experience talking to alumni, people who have been in the industry for so long. Um, and having them, you know, for a podcast or an energy association conference, it's it's awesome. What, what about <laughs> what about a policy punchline? We always ask our guests at the very end, what, what's uh, what's the policy punchline after this episode? I think that the best thing I can come up with is uh, look really carefully at the assumptions and make sure you're not comparing apples and oranges. And, and not fossil fuels are created equal. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> that combination. Awesome. Well, this is it's been a wonderful conversation, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining us today in the studio. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. And, and thanks, Peyton, for joining me at Policy Punchline. This of course, great. anytime. This yeah. is awesome. <laughs> uh, so this concludes our, our interview with Nancy. Uh, she is a former uh, ExxonMobil executive. We had a wonderful conversation with Peyton, my friend, who, who uh, is on Princeton's uh, Energy Association. We look forward to expanding this segment on energy. This is sort of uh, our, our first conversation here, and I think this is the first time you ever hosted a podcast, right? Yes, Peyton? first time. <laughs> so this is great. Uh, so hopefully we'll get more voices together in, in, down, the ro- down the road. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for listening today. Uh, please follow us on policypunchine.com, uh, iTunes, Spotify, SoundClouds, all those platforms. Uh, rate and review us. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.